one time I went to do a retreat in a house that had been rented for several of us to go on retreat in. And when I moved into my bedroom, I noticed that a cartoon had been left for me on the desk. The cartoon was from the comic strip Peanuts, and it featured the two characters, Lucy and Charlie Brown. In the first frame, Lucy is saying to Charlie Brown, discouraged again, eh, Charlie Brown? You know what your trouble is? The whole trouble with you is that you're you. (laughs) (laughs) Then in the next frame, Charlie Brown says in response, well, what in the world can I do about it? Then in the third and final frame, Lucy Lucy responds to him by saying, I don't pretend to be able to give advice. I merely point out the trouble. (laughs) And somehow, whenever I was doing walking meditation in this room, I would walk by this desk and find my eye just stray to the cartoon (laughs) and see it. The trouble with you is that you're you. And then I'd go back to doing my walking. So I want to talk tonight about that and about the ability or the quality of finding some trust and some faith within ourselves, mostly in terms of our conditioning or either our personal or psychological or cultural conditioning or our training. We do tend to feel that the whole trouble with us is that we're us. The whole trouble with me is that I'm me. And yet, we're also taught that some feeling of confidence or faith or trust is fundamental to this endeavor, to this practice. I can remember when I was first in Burma about to practice intensive metta. And that was a very new practice for me in terms of a a systematic, intensive focus on it even though I had been doing Vipassana practice for many years. The very first day when Upandita called me into his room to give me my initial instructions in doing metta, the first thing he said to me was, do you think you're going to succeed at doing this practice? And my heart just sank. I thought, oh no, it's a trap. He's looking for conceit, he's looking for pride, he's looking for arrogance. So I said to him, well, I don't know. Maybe I will, maybe I won't. I'm not really sure I can, but I'll try. And he looked at me, just sort of shook his head dolefully and said, everything you do, you should do knowing that you can succeed in doing it. That's the basis for your practice. That's the launching of your confidence. That's what you need. It isn't that state of arrogance or conceit or pride, but rather it's a very heartful courage that he was talking about. It's the recognition of our innate abilities. And in that sense, it's not at all personal. It's quite impersonal, it's shared, it's universal. It's like the recognition of the truth of our basic nature. When we talk about having some sense of confidence or faith in ourselves, it doesn't mean that we're encouraging a state of believing fully in the content of all of the passing thoughts that come and go in our minds. We do tend to have a lot of identification with these thoughts. We think that these thoughts are basically who we are. It's difficult enough not to identify with the body, but it's certainly much more difficult not to identify with the mind. But just imagine what this room would look like if even three or four people for a single hour's meditation, followed every thought that came into their minds. There'd be a lot going on. 
let alone if everybody got up every time they had the impulse and did whatever they wanted to do to other people here in this room. <laughs> but already we have a kind of common sense or basic wisdom. We don't believe in every single thought that comes through our minds. Because in fact, our thoughts and impulses and feelings are conflicted, they're fragmented. They go all over the place. So to say that we have confidence in ourselves or faith in the process of our minds doesn't necessarily mean that we believe we will ever be able to absolutely control the content of what arises in our minds. One time I asked Joseph what the absolutely worst thought he'd ever had in meditation practice was. And it was remarkable to me because it was almost identical to what I would consider just my worst thought in meditation. (laughs) So when I asked him, he told me that he was practicing here once as a yogi. He was doing walking meditation and was experiencing a very difficult day, a very painful day in his practice. This was many years ago. So when he heard a plane flying overhead, he had the thought, wouldn't that be great if that were a Russian bomber and it dropped a bomb? Then I wouldn't have to continue doing this walking meditation anymore and I could just leave the retreat. Um, And then he thought something like, well, that's not very nice, is it, to wish for nuclear holocaust just so that I wouldn't have to finish this walking period. And it was remarkable because my so-called worst thought was almost identical. It happened when I was practicing in Burma, and coincidentally, I was doing a walking meditation, and I was having a very difficult day. And the country of Burma, as well as being this wonderful haven that has supported us so beautifully in our practice, is also a military dictatorship, and it's a country of some some political struggle. So I was walking along, having a difficult time, and I began thinking, this is a country of potentially great civil unrest. Wouldn't it be fantastic if there were a revolution? And I could just see the, the rioting going on in the streets, in my mind, and are having to evacuate to the American embassy so that it could be airlifted out of the country and I could, I could be gone. I wouldn't have to keep doing it. <laughs> but this is it, you know, and I said something similar to myself. Well, that's not very nice, you know, just to wish for an entire country's upheaval for the sake of my, my release from, from doing this walking practice. But really, we see that all of our thoughts and our feelings are quite conditioned. They're insubstantial. They arise due to the combination of conditions. They're impermanent. They're fleeting. And they do not arise according to our will or whim or wish. They're outside of our control. And because of that, it's not in the content of these changing thoughts and feelings that we find a refuge. I've seen so many people over so many years express a kind of despair because the same kinds of thoughts are arising in their minds, or thoughts are arising in their minds, which they think should not be happening anymore. But really, That is not the point of the practice. When we say we have confidence or trust, the quality that will allow us to have ardency and courage not to withhold ourselves in our practice, we're not talking about trusting fleeting things that will always remain outside of our control. We're talking about things like having trust in in the very nature of awareness, having trust in our our innate ability to be mindful and to be aware. 
once again, the teaching is founded on the idea that how we relate to what is happening is all important. What is happening is arising outside of our control. The most important thing of all is our view. It's our understanding. It's how we relate to what's going on. When things are difficult, we don't have to give in to an overwhelming anxiety. We don't have to feel defeated. We don't have to feel depressed. We don't have to feel apathetic. When things are wonderful, we don't have to get attached. We don't have to believe that this is something we can keep or this is something we can claim as ours. Everything is arising due to conditions. And no matter what is happening, our awareness of it can be open, it can be spacious, and it can be free. One time when I was in India, I went to see a certain teacher. And when I was with him, I had a nice time with him, and I had a kind of an insight into the interconnection of all things, which I described to the teacher. His first comment to me was, well, now you'll never feel fear again. And I thought, yeah, right. And I don't think it was 10 minutes later that I was out on the streets of India and something happened and I got quite afraid. But it was different. It really was different in some way. And so what we learn is that we have the strength and the ability to be with everything. Trungpa Rinpoche once said, acknowledging fear is not cause for depression or discouragement. Because we possess such fear, we also are potentially entitled to experience fearlessness. True fearlessness is not the reduction of fear, but going beyond fear. We say going beyond, we actually mean seeing through. It's like seeing the transparency, cutting through the seeming solidity, seeing the ephemeral nature of the fear, the insubstantiality of it. We can do that when our perspective is quite big, when the spaciousness of our hearts is quite large. Then we're experiencing whatever is happening with a quality of awareness that's open, that's accepting, that's relating to what's happening moment by moment. And this is a crucial understanding that we experience whatever's happening right here and now without any contrivance, without any predetermination, and we experience it moment by moment. That's all we ever can do. The Buddha once described four kinds of meditators. And this isn't a, a lifetime designation where you can sort of find your slot and where you belong, but it's something that at any given time you may relate to one of the four much more strongly than some of the others. <clears throat> he described people who in practice experienced a lot of difficulty, maybe a lot of pain in the body, painful feelings arising, difficult, unpleasant mind states, a lot of hindrances, and these people progress very quickly. And then he talked about people who have all of those difficult states arising in the body and the mind, and they progress very slowly. And the Buddha talked about meditators who experience wondrous light feelings in the body and maybe get white light and have beautiful mind states, and they progress very slowly. And he talked about people who have all of those lovely things happening in the body and the mind, and they progress very quickly. 
A lot of times when we use this image, people immediately slot themselves into that second category of those who are experiencing all of the difficulty in the body and the mind and are progressing very slowly. But it doesn't have to be that way. And any single moment is a complete radical reorientation of that. Because no matter what is happening, the whole idea of progress, if it can be held at all, is held in the nature of how we're relating to what's happening. That's really everything. If fear is arising in a very tight, clenched, judgmental, unhappy space, then certainly it's quite an overwhelming feeling. If that same fear is arising in an open, vast, compassionate space, we can call it fear, but it doesn't shatter our confidence. It doesn't really disturb us in quite the same way. And so we learn to trust the power of our own awareness, and we see that, in fact, it has this quality. It has this nature definitely to affect how we are relating to what's happening, and that changes everything. A couple of summers ago, when I was in Santa Fe, in New Mexico, some friends heard from me that I had never been to an opera in my life, and so they determined to take me to the opera. Now in Santa Fe, the opera house is a beautiful open-air theater, And Santa Fe, as many of you know, is quite famous for its dramatic, open, magnificent, vast skies. So they did take me to the opera, and our seats were such that from where I was sitting, I could both see the stage and this enormous, vast, seemingly boundless sky behind it as well. And I found it so amusing to look first at these people behaving rather operatically on the stage, <laughs> and then to look at this, this unimpeded, big, big sky, and then to look back at them, <laughs> and then back at, at the sky. Because that is the nature of, of awareness. It's the nature of equanimity, in fact, to be able to be present with all things, and not impeded in any way. Often when we try to describe the quality of equanimity or that aspect of awareness, that that characteristic of awareness, images are used to somehow bring forth the idea of space. The word equanimity can be mistaken for indifference or coldness or withdrawal, all of which are perhaps better seen as very subtle manifestations of aversion or anger. But equanimity can be known as a spacious stillness of mind, where the stillness doesn't come from nothing happening. It comes from the openness that can allow everything to happen and not impede it in any way. It's that wonderful and quite famous example from Ajahn Chah when he talked about, as you meditate, your mind will become quieter and quieter, like a still forest pool. He went on to say, all of the wonderful and rare animals will come to drink at the pool, but you remain still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. I've always loved that example because of the image of all of those wonderful and rare animals coming to drink at the pool. There's some very odd animals that come sometimes to drink at the pool. But you remain still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. It's important to somehow get a feeling sense for that spaciousness and openness of awareness of equanimity. 
so as not to consider it coldness or not caring or pulling away. Because we can be present with what is happening with equanimity, we can see it in an entirely different way. We can see right into the heart of things. We can see through the fear to the insubstantiality, which is its basis. One time Trungpa Rinpoche was teaching a group of students and I'm told that he drew kind of a a floppy V-shape in the center of this large white piece of paper and then held it up in front of his students and asked what it was a picture of. And apparently all of the people, like 30 or 35 people, replied by saying, oh, that's a picture of a bird. And then Trungpa Rinpoche said, no, it's not. It's a picture of the sky with a bird flying through it. That's really what happens as we gain the perspective of equanimity, as we learn to trust in the power of our own awareness. We don't fixate. We don't narrow our vision. We don't get lost or compelled by the various birds that are flying through and completely forget the sky. Everything gets bigger, gets more open, more relaxed, more yielding. It's in the, the very nature of, of seeing clearly in a way. It's not that we lose touch with the exactness of what's arising. When I was in that street in India, I would not have called it joy. I could only really have called it fear. But it was different. It was somehow arising in a different amount of space than perhaps it had been, would have been maybe a week before. It's all a question of understanding that if we look deeply into one thing, we will find everything. We'll find the actual nature of all things. We'll find the interconnected nature of all things. A couple of years ago, for my birthday, Carol gave me a book, which has become my very favorite book. It doesn't have any words in it at all. It's a book called Zoom, which I'll try to describe a little bit. It's quite difficult because it doesn't have any words to describe uh, really accurately. But she handed me this book at my birthday party, and I opened it up, and the first thing I saw was a picture of a rooster. And I thought, well, that's weird. You know, Carol just gave me a book for my birthday, and the book doesn't have any words in it, and it's about a rooster. (laughs) And then I turned the page, and what I saw was children looking through a window at the rooster. And I turned the page, and I saw that that very house that the children were in, I saw that from the extreme other end. I could just barely see the children at the other end. And then I turned the page, and I saw that there was a child's hand moving houses around in a sandbox, so that I realized everything I had been seeing before the rooster and the children and the house was really just a set of toys. So I thought, okay, it's a book about some children and they're playing in this sandbox with these toys. And I turn the page and there's a larger view of this little girl playing with her toys. Then you see that that whole scene of the child and the sandbox and all of the toys is really on the cover of a book and that the boy who's holding the book is on an ocean liner. So I said, okay, it's a story about a boy who's on an ocean liner and he's reading a book and the cover of the book happens to have the rooster and the children and all those things. And I said, okay, now I've got it. And then you turn the page a few times and there's a 
a shot of the entire ocean liner, which turns out to be a billboard on a bus. But okay, <laughs> story about a bus. <laughs> Went through that, and then keep turning the page, and then you realize that the bus itself is on a television screen, and the television is being watched by a cowboy sitting in the desert in Arizona next to this cactus. That's how you know where he is. And you keep turning the page, having gone through, okay, it's a story about a cowboy who's watching television and television, you know. And then you realize that the cowboy with the desert and the cactus and the television screen and everything on the television screen is actually a stamp. And that stamp is on a letter going to the Solomon Islands in Australia. And you keep turning the page and then you see that that whole scene of the people on the island getting the letter with the stamp on it um, is being observed by a pilot. And then as you keep turning the page, you see the pilot and the earth, and then the plane is receding and we simply see the earth. So I closed the book at that point and I looked at Carol and I said, I feel like God. It's a wonderful book. But this is really it. It's to see that whatever our experience is, just one shift in perspective can reveal the entire universe to us because it's all contained there. And that no matter what is arising in our experience, we do not have to collapse our identity around it and say, I'm such a fearful person. This is who I am. This is who I always will be. But realize that if we trust the power of awareness itself, we will be able to see things in perspective. We'll be able to see the wholeness of our being. We'll be able to see the totality of our interconnectedness. There's nothing that cannot reveal that to us. All experiences of the body and the mind are simply the product. They're the, the manifestation of those laws of nature. So we don't have to look anywhere else. There is nowhere else to look for the truth of things. It's all right here before us. So that's really the first place we can develop great trust in ourselves is in the power, the opening and expansive power of our own awareness. And then we can have great trust and faith in the power of our own effort. Once I was sitting in Nepal with a Tibetan teacher and somebody was saying to this teacher, you know, it's really hard hearing all of these stories about people who lived in the time of the Buddha or soon after, and somebody came along and said, all things have the nature of change or something like that to them, one sentence or less, and they got fully enlightened, and then they just flew off into space. And this person was saying to the teacher, you know, it's just too remarkable. It's too remote. It's too bizarre. And I'll never get there. It'll never happen to me. I just have huge doubts about my own capacity in practice. And what the teacher said in response was very striking to me. He said, if you want confidence and faith, you need to rest it on diligence. Diligence brings forth confidence because diligence actually brings forth realization. Diligence yields everything. And that is not superhuman effort, and it's not terrible, hideous, horrible austerities. It is a continual inclining of the mind or inclining of the heart toward awareness toward loving-kindness, toward compassion. 
it's the power of commitment. It's the power of a continuity of effort that really is the question. It's bringing something to life. All of us might have a certain level of understanding, which we can appreciate, even though it may be theoretical or intellectual. But when we bring it to life, it's a very different level of actualization. When I went to India in 1970, I had been a a college student in Buffalo, and I had studied a little bit of Asian philosophy. I'd studied some Buddhism in college. I'd written term papers on karma and um, the middle way and things like that. And I thought I had a certain level of understanding of the teaching, even quite a good level of understanding of the teaching. And then when I got to my first meditation retreat and I was sitting there and I was looking at my knee pain, I realized that I didn't have a clue what those teachings were about when I was sitting in Buffalo, New York. Because it isn't just a question of having an abstract appreciation of equanimity and awareness and being able to look at painful sensation and see their impermanent nature. It really is a question of what happens when it's your knee pain. That's the point. And so really the, the transformative quality of diligence is the ability to bring to life all of the teachings. And it's separate from having a certain accomplishment. What will happen in our practice is something that we really cannot control. If there were some secret you know, to be, being able to come in here and sit down and say, well, you know, I'd like to be enlightened by this afternoon. You know, it would be wonderful. And somebody would figure it out. And, and there would be some, some kind of discernment. And, and then we could talk about it. And, uh, you know, everyone could get enlightened by this afternoon. But really, it doesn't seem to work that way. The purification of our hearts comes through this continual inclining of the mind. It's like we become renunciates of a certain type, not renunciation as a terrible, horrible, awful act. But the the movement of our hearts toward liberation becomes more assured. And so we get less caught up in the distractions that do arise. When you are sitting and some kind of desire or clinging arises, it's very easy to follow it and just say, oh, well, you know, I'll just spend half a day thinking it through and fantasizing about it and planning how it's all going to work out. But really, it's not all that interesting when the fullness of our being can be gathered or collected around something that is actually happening in this moment. So we incline the mind. It's it's the the preciousness or the it's the it's the power of our effort that we can trust. It's not about being a success, and it's not about making something happen, because in fact we can't. All we can do is be as sincere and ardent in our effort as we possibly can. The word ardency is actually a a good translation of that sense of effort, rather than straining and, and struggling being unhappy with what we're doing. It's a sense of ardency, not holding back, not waiting for a better day, not waiting for better experience, being quite complete and full with our presence right here and now.
one year when I was in Brumble, we went during the rainy season, which was a very good time to practice in many ways, but it was really rainy. And the sheets of rain would come pouring out of the sky. It was unbelievable. And everything mildewed. All of our clothes mildewed and our towels mildewed. And um, one day I held my hand up and my watch band just mildewed. It broke right off my arm. And my lung was mildewed. And it was, it was not a good time in that way. It was a very uh, kind of horrible, dank, oppressive atmosphere. And one day I uh, Upanita gave a talk and he said, We're completely lost in certain mind states. Then our internal environment is a little bit like the external environment in the rainy season in Burma. It's kind of blank and oppressive and humid and heavy and mildewy. And he said, The, the quality that cleans it out is ardency. It's like a fire that will be light in that atmosphere. And all of the oppressiveness, it just lifts. Things get clear. They get, they get clarified. They get opened in that way. The quality of effort is really very important. We tend to measure what's going on for ourselves or our imagination of what's going on for others by measuring as best we can certain experiences. One time I went to see a Tibetan teacher and I described something that had happened in my practice. Um, there was actually a dukkha kind of experience, but I was very proud of it because I know that those were good things to have. And so I, I described it to him in that way. And he said something like, well, how long did it last? And I said, maybe 45 minutes. And he told me the story about a great Tibetan Lama of long ago who'd been in that mind state for 18 years or 20 years or something like that. It's very funny. Just to point out that, um, not to diminish the importance of my experience, but that clinging to it as an experience was worthless. Because it was something that came and it won't. And anything we cling to that is impermanent will cause suffering. Rather than looking at experience as some criteria for our progress, we look at the nature of our effort, the compassionate nature of it, the open nature of it, continuous nature of it, how much are we really inclined in the mind toward awareness, toward loving kindness. That's really the whole point. One of the very simple examples that the Buddha used a lot is when he talked about the mind being filled with qualities like mindfulness or loving kindness moment by moment. Just the way a bucket will be filled with water drop by drop. And as soon as I heard that example, although it's very simple, I just loved it. Because as soon as I heard it, I saw myself standing by that bucket, feeling one of two things. One was standing there, lost in the delighted fantasy about how wonderful it was going to feel when that bucket was filled. 
And the wooden ball of it had that next drop. And we're just standing and oh, it's going to be really great to be completely enlightened, you know. Who could I tell first? And, you know, will they all know without my saying a word? And, but I wouldn't have the patience and the humility just to add that next drop. Or else I could see myself standing by the bucket and looking inside and getting really morose and saying, Really empty, you know. It's going to take a very long time to fill this. And once again, not having the patience and, and just being willing to have the very next drop. You know, to take that moment's opportunity to be mindful, to have method or whatever it was. And so it became an extremely important image for me in my practice. Just do it now. Now is a moment that we can add a drop, and that's what we need to do. And then in relation to what I was just saying, as time has gone on, and I've used that image more and more, I see the all ways of extending it so that I know we can stand by the bucket and kind of peer over and look into other people's buckets and try to see how well we're doing in comparison to them. But it doesn't work quite that way because all we can see are the real or imagined experiences of somebody not really how mindful somebody is about them, and so we get lost. Last time I used the example, somebody said to me, can you develop a leak in your bucket? And all I can say is, no. That's the confidence that we have, and that's the faith that we have, that we begin to see that our effort it is in itself the purification. It's the point of the path. It's not leading to something. It's the very openness and the willingness to keep going and the patience and the care that it is in the absolute. But that is what it is the transformative quality of the path. As you know, when we talk about metta practice or any of the Brahma-Vikala practices, I say ad nauseum that it doesn't matter what you feel as long as you say the phrases. Because I have myself put in many, many hours of doing all of those practices without feeling anything at all. Perhaps thinking this isn't working or this is stupid or this is a waste of time or, you know, why can't I do it? Only to discover after some period of practice and often looking back that really something was happening in, in all of them. You could know there were no, perhaps no great bursts of loving feeling or static times or great uh, blissful experiences. It didn't matter because what was happening was that my sheer willingness to keep going and saying those phrases and incorporating my mind again and again, harnessing that power of intention to care and to connect, that's the level in which the practice was working. And that's what was actually most important. The experiences all come and go. None of them last. 
You should just read the Bible. Let me try to practice very much. Let's have a nice, sort of non-like medication for the rest of your life. Um, you know, but don't, don't really, really practice with ardency because you're just too old. Which you have a tremendous sense of motivation and the desire for freedom or inclination for freedom. She thought, no, I really do want to practice. So we just started all of what everything was telling her. She just started to walk up the mountain and she said it to herself. At the end of the day, the hindrance to them is overwhelmed. And she walked up the mountain and meditated very ardently. And as the story is only that I'm so happy that she didn't become fully enlightened. Instead of that, she then walked down the mountain. And the whole community gathered around her and said, You look really good. What happened to you? But it's, it's that inner father, which of course needs to be balanced. It needs to be wise. It needs to be wisely applied. But it's something that we can also learn to trust, we can learn to rely on, and allow a million different experiences to come and go as they will. And simply to take refuge in the, the power of our awareness and in the power of our own effort. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.